0: morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the August 22, 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. Today we'll cover contemporary Chinese politics in the aftermath of the death of Nobel Peace Laureate, Liu Xiaobo. My guest for the whole hour will be University of California, San Diego Professor Richard Matson bringing his extensive interdisciplinary scholarship on China and media professional and activist Dr. Sean Lin to the microphone. Both will provide context for better understanding of how, where we are now and what we might anticipate under these complicated circumstances. We'll start with 2011 Nobel Peace Prize laureate, who was forbidden by his government from accepting his award and who succumbed July 13th, that's last month, to liver cancer while imprisoned. Both Professor Madsen and Dr. Lin will take up the political and cultural context in China today as they examine the tension between restless constituents' desire for connection and their reliance on government stability and predictability and the path the current leader of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping, is taking this country amidst the leadership vacuum elsewhere. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. My guests for the whole hour are University of California, San Diego, Distinguished Emeritus Professor of Sociology and Chinese Studies, Richard Madsen, and Media Professional and Activist, Dr. Sean Lin. First, Richard Matson, an academic with a broad interdisciplinary grasp, explores and criticizes the culture of individualism and the institutions that sustain it. He's authored or co-authored 12 books and some over 50 articles on Chinese culture, American culture, and international relations. Habits of the Heart won the Los Angeles Times Book Award and was jury nominated for the Pulitzer Prize of particular interest to today's interview are his books China and the American Dream and Restless China. You might have seen his recent editorial that he penned last May for the Washington Post entitled Flourishing Spirituality in China Apart from Traditional Western Dogma. He was co-director of a Ford Foundation project to help revive academic discipline of sociology in China. Richard Madsen completed his master's of arts and Asian studies and PhD in sociology from Harvard. My other guest is Dr. Sean Lin. He was born and folks and everybody, please bear with my stumbling on pronouncing Chinese proper names, but uh, I'm, anytime Sean Lin can jump in and, and Richard too, uh, to correct me. Sean Lin was born in Fuzhou, China in 1971 and he completed his bachelor's degree in biological science in it's a Jejang Zhe, University and uh, in 1992 and the timing of this part of his university education will become quite important in today's discussion in 2002 he completed his PhD degree in microbiology from the University of Alabama at Birmingham and then in 2000 Three th- through he did his post work at Emory University, Atlanta, Georgia. He was the 2005-2008. Uh, he was an executive vice president of Sound of Hope Radio Network, then hosted a talk show at New Tang Dynasty TV. He's a microbiologist at the Walter Reed Institute of Research, and this year became founder and general manager of WKER, FM radio, uh, found by the Chinese-American Community Connections in Rockville, Maryland, broadcasting mainly, I think, in Mandarin. Sean Lin comes to us today from Rockville, Maryland, and Richard Madsen joins us from San Diego. Welcome, both of you, to Ask a Leader.
1: Thank you, well, Thanks Claudia. for having me.
0: Well, let us first consider Liu Xiaobo 2011 Nobel Peace Prize laureate, a revered writer and a public intellectual, prominent in pro-democracy movement politics. He was, uh, I think, he himself penned one of the manifestos that were elevated there. He was forbidden by his government from ex- his accepting his Nobel Prize while he was imprisoned there. German pacifist uh, Karl. Uh, von Izetsky, uh, a 1935 recipient of um, the Nobel Prize. That was the last guy that was, who was imprisoned during the time he could have accepted his award, that the Nazi administration kept him uh, in prison. Liu Xiaobo's wife, Liu, Liu Xia, was during her husband's detention and appears still to be under house arrest, and her brother is incommunicado. So we're all getting the pattern here, folks. On this program, I'm the asking the scholar and activist, scholar to uh, offer context considering this tension we're talking about so let's begin with Sean's experience tell us what Liu Xiaobo what he means to the Chinese people what he means to you Sean Lin
2: uh, Claudia thanks for having me Um uh, so this bring back uh, a lot of memories yes yes because yeah, uh, in 1989 I have was actually involved in uh, uh you know student movements and I actually was in the Tiananmen Square on the night of the massacre. Yeah. So to me uh Liu Xiaobo was a special person because you know on the night of this uh massacre on the evening of June third and at a on the square, um at the beginning, you know, students and scholars there that we were pretty like step first, we wanna, you know, hold on to this important spot in the Tiananmen Square, all the way through, and it was I think, in early morning of uh, June June 4th, and when Liu Xiaobo tried to negotiate with the uh, the militaries in the Tiananmen Square, and then eventually reached a deal, so uh, the authority decided to let the students leave from the southeast corner of the Tiananmen Square. So fortunately, I was able to, you know, withdraw from this Tam Square and back to the university. When I was visiting my friends in uh, Tsinghua University there, so in a certain sense, Liu Xiaobo was the one who saved my life. So, and yeah, that's why it was a special uh, meaning to me.
0: And I, I want for everyone to respect that when we have you go back. This is we we may be subjecting you to some. Some pretty intense post-traumatic stress. Uh, you saw some pretty gruesome things when when I met you uh, last month. When I first met you, and I was such it was such an, a privilege to get to meet you. Then I realized that you had witnessed something so grim. I don't think any of us would ever be able to put it aside, compartmentalize it the way you must have been able to. But we we have to really honor what you saw and that that you have. <laughs> You had so yeah, much. Skin it's okay. I
2: I can mention that part because uh, you know, when, before we left the town square we already hear the uh, the gun, the firing and the bullet hitting the the monuments in the square. And when we uh left the square when we uh it's on the south, right? We're heading back to north to uh Tsinghua University uh, you're passing the Chang'an Street and there was one moment uh, uh Several tanks passing by the, uh, the student groups, and of course, some students you were know, very scared and running away. And one student actually fell on the street. So I saw uh, a tank stop, and then intentionally roll back and crash the skull of the student. It was really really terrible scene. Everybody saw that was like stunned, with petrified in, in a moment. And then the tank eventually left. And I actually got a chance to walk closer. You know, it was really a scary uh, view. It was my first time see a human's head. It's like a flat as a paper. It was really a scary uh, moment. Yeah. So, and also a student run away. We further go back north, and then I had to hide in uh, uh, different alleys, even in uh, other civilians' homes, because uh, the, the some other soldiers were chasing the students. Yeah. It was a terrible moment. Yeah.
0: And when you describe this horrific setting, and we're, we're not, we really don't mean to sensationalize this, this I'm taking real earnest talk with you and with Professor Matson that, that you also mentioned that there were two narratives about what actually did take place at the square, that, there, that the, the party lines, and I mean that literally and figuratively, the party line was that no students were killed on the square and you say that is, that is one narrative and you have a different one.
2: Yes, um, the government always tried to uh, portray this picture to the world that all all the crime was happening outside the Tiananmen Square, so they tried to emphasize in the Tiananmen Square they were just peacefully taking the student out. But as I mentioned a moment ago, you know, because before we left, the uh, shots already opened in in the Tiananmen Square, and then there are some students still decided not to leave, you know, most of the students decide to agree with the uh, majority to leave the square, but there are some students still stay in the square and there are some students actually slept in the tent in the square. So those are the students uh were most likely died and actually later on I saw the report saying that even the uh, the military they have to clean all the bloodshed in the town square uh, before it can open up later on. So they are definitely uh, students dying on the square, and not even have to mention so many students, Serbian, died to block the military entering the Tiananmen Square. So definitely, there was a huge uh, massacre on that night.
0: So, Professor Matson, would you like to comment? You've you've spent so much time studying, sort of the the Chinese. People's Party values, the Confucian values, and American values, and here you have uh, this witness to what happened, and he's now, he's decided, he's, he's brought his professional life to the United States. I know you've met, met many who've been involved in, uh, in that particular protest and other movement politics and all that, I certainly want you to comment on, on what Dr. Lin was talking about right now.
1: Well, I wasn't at Tiananmen Square at that moment, but I had been in China for uh, five months before, and uh, I knew a number of the people who were involved in the student movement. So uh, I I certainly had a, a, and I followed very closely, had a good feel for what was going on. As far as Liu Xiaobo is concerned, he was, first of all, a very, very courageous person. He Actually, uh, he had his Ph.D. Uh, he was a lecturer at uh, People's University in, in Beijing. Uh, he was a visiting scholar in the United States at Columbia University in 1989 when the demonstrations uh, first broke out. And he could have stayed in the States and uh, you know commented on it all from afar. But he made a conscious and very faithful decision to go back and to take part and yes. to try to contribute. And he did so in, uh, I, I think it's his actions show he was trying to be very uh, creative, uh, but also uh, very responsible in helping and advising uh, the movement. So this was a very difficult time, a, a passion-filled time, chaotic time in many ways. And... He was one of those who tried to give help the students develop uh, realistic goals and 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 you know kind of a discipline to be able to carry out a movement which uh, would would really be efficacious. so and then at, at the square he and several others were carrying on um, a fast, a hunger strike uh, again partly to kind of galvanize the movement but also to give them some uh, focus and discipline at the night when the uh, the troops moved in and he helped to negotiate a peaceful withdrawal for at least the, those students that were camped out right in front of this monument and the people's heroes there so he avoided helped them avoid a certain amount of a, a large amount of bloodshed much more than it would have been and he, he helped you know, bring a conclusion to this in a fairly orderly uh, way. So he was uh, a kind of a voice of, of, of reason and responsibility, but also of great courage at the time. So in, in some respects, I would have thought, well, the government should be happy with him. right? He, right. he, he helped in that way. But no, that they threw him into prison for uh, several years right after. And then he was in and out of prison, released, uh, but kept under you know, tight control, uh, back in prison again in the late uh, 90s and, and so forth, and continued to develop his ideas and to voice his criticism of the Chinese government and his hopes for the future. And you could see kind of an evolution of his thinking, a, a deepening of his thinking about politics and about China over those years. The problem was that, it was virtually impossible for him to get his writings published in China. So he he, he wrote them, communicated some of them online, uh, circulated them, but the real audience for his work was, was fairly small in China because of the censorship and all the control. And then in 2008, he... Uh, and others, uh, but he was kind of the main author, the main coordinator, wrote a document called Charter 08, right. and the title is reminiscent of the charter, uh, I think it was 77, in in Czechoslovakia that had been written by, coordinated by Václav Havel, who later, of course, became president of, after being in prison, president of, of Czechoslovakia, yes. calling for, for basically human rights, constitutional government, et cetera. If you read the document, from our point of view, it's nothing radical, not even incendiary. It just calls for basically basic civic liberties and you know a rule by law and so forth. It seems you know part of those truths that we say are self-evident. But anyway, they wrote this document. At the end, there were thousands of people who signed on to it, and this was document first released on Human Rights Day in 2008. So, since he, he was sort of the leader coordinator of it, uh, he was then uh, immediately put in jail, and uh, and then later tried and uh, you know given 11 years in in prison uh, where he he died because he wasn't probably wasn't given adequate treatment he got he got cancer and and then and passed away as you know. So his his treatment by uh, the Chinese government was extremely shameful, no question about it. Then, of course, he, he received a Nobel Peace Prize in 2011, uh, and yet was not able to travel to receive it. His wife uh, is also, I uh, must say, very, very courageous, Both stood by him, and has been under uh, basically virtual house arrest uh, every, ever since, and uh, right now is basically incommunicado. Uh, we don't know where she is, but uh, she has no freedom of movement, I think.
0: Well, and I think something so. that the Guardian covered, too, uh, recent, this last couple of days was that you can't even get near her residence. There's these uh, plainclothesmen that are deflecting traffic. So there's, there's so many barriers. She's so walled in. And incommunicado is like the start of the explanation of her status.
1: Yes, yes, she's walled in, and then the government is going to do everything it can to can control this. Now, the problem with, with with this is that people in China, the younger generation, knows very little about him because he can't be talked about publicly, and uh, and news about him and his fate and and, and so forth is, is is suppressed. So, when I taught my teach my students in class here at UCSD. Uh, I tell them about Liu Xiaobo, I show them videos of the you know, you know, uh, Tiananmen movement 1989, and tell them about Liu Xiaobo. The younger ones hardly know who he is. They maybe have heard his name, et cetera, and they heard he's you know, accused of being a criminal and so forth, uh, but hardly know anything about him. So uh, the Chinese government has been very uh, effective at one level. In imposing all sorts of restrictions on news, information, uh, and so forth to, 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 to keep their society under control. Meanwhile, of course, Leo Chabot became has become famous around the world. His writings are, uh, some, some of them have been translated into English, and, and there's, there's a book of, of, of his writings in translation.
0: And uh, what's the title?
1: Several years ago. Uh, I believe uh, uh, maybe my memory isn't isn't good enough, but I believe it, it's the title of one of his famous his statements at his at his trial. Uh, I have no enemies. Okay. Yes, uh, it's, it's, that's. I, I believe that's the title of the book.
0: Oh wow! Such such a such a powerful man that that speaks to pr- the the perceived subversion that of the the Chinese People's Party uh, and the so the People's Republic. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to say. So um, then, that and the way he was, his remains were were dealt with. It was you know, certainly under control of, of the the government, off any kind of a camera, so to speak. That uh, his ashes were scattered in the Pacific, so that there wouldn't be any place for. I mean, it would further undermine any kind of creating memories and creating places to to recognize him but there there are some subversive measures i'm sort of pleased to say that there were that activists have figured out how to make the whole pacific ocean a memorial place for him so there there's there's there's, there's possibility so i i'd like for you now that uh, we're we're talking about how the chinese government has done everything to wall off this earnest intellectuals attempts to Bring some kind of democratic reform to this huge society, only two billion, right? So, let's talk about those efforts to ramp up the surveillance and the censorship on the internet. The netizens are really challenging what the government is doing, and we keep we just heard some more about the some of the the third-party apps are not being made available on some of their the smartphones over there. What could, could, would you two like to talk about in, as far as that tension between the government and the desire for the individual to find out more on their internet?
2: Okay, I, I can start a little bit. Kind uh, of echo what uh, Professor Maston just mentioned, uh, even for Liu Xiaobo's case, the younger generation Chinese Many of them know very little about Liu Xiaobo. Even in Washington DC area, when I met some young generation when Liu Xiaobo passed away, and asked them, Do you know who Liu Xiaobo is? And do you know who won the Nobel Peace Prize in China? Most of them. I have no idea. Right. Yeah, so the censorship is pretty strong, and it was like a long-time censorship for Liu Xiaobo's information. And nowadays, uh, when the Chinese Communist Party is preparing for their 19th Communist Party's um, Politburo meetings, they actually have intensified uh, uh, the censorship on the Internet. So they have censored the VPN vendors on Alibaba's, and have forced the to the take VPN. down their the
0: VPN, uh, apps. Yes. Uh-huh.
2: yeah, related to this v p n service, so these are very harsh crackdown on the internet freedoms, and because most of the Chinese people have to be uh, locked inside the China great firewall, right they can right. only serve the internet that the government allowed it, even for example, if they visit a the New York Times, inside China, what they see is Chinese versions of uh, New York Times. Some of the sensitive uh, reports probably already taken down. Right. Yeah, Just like uh, last week, right, that's the news uh, saying uh, the Oxford uh, publications, uh, you know, they also was forced to take down more than 300 articles inside China. So this kind of censorship environment, people have to find a way to try to, you know, jump over the world to to the free world right. to get and, some information.
0: And Dr. Lin, I just want to say too that besides the internal that it, we're, we're reading this week two reports of how Cambridge University, there is the reach of government-affiliated business folks in China are trying to control academic freedom at the Cambridge University in, in England. So it's sort of, it's really, the, the reach is quite extensive.
2: Yeah, it is quite extensive. And then also, they've been controlling the of, of foreign scholars uh what they can do what kind of study that can be done yes. uh, inside china and sometimes they control the uh, like sample groups that the scholars can assess sometimes they manipulate the fundings yes. and sometimes they you know control the questionnaire that you can you know ask for the students or for the society sometimes they follow you when you do surveys inside china so it's pretty difficult environment even for the foreign scholars inside china and if it's Chinese scholars, of course, your publication will be scrutinized much more severely. It's yeah. yeah, so very difficult. So even, even for scientific worlds, so many times you, you will hear the scientific world, the scholars, and maybe in the Chinese academy, they will complain sometimes how hard to find articles because you censor the Googles and all these surveys, and you cannot
1: use the Facebook and Twitters, Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Professor Mattson? Yes.
1: Yeah. Yes, it's... Um very, very, you know, it's amazing uh, how widespread, complicated, sophisticated these controls of the Internet are. It's just uh, they have a massive amount of people, 60,000, 70,000 people working uh, as I mean, human, human beings, are working to censor things on the Internet, as well as very complicated, uh, you know, computer algorithms and so forth to filter things. So Google is, is totally blocked in China, anything Google, because Google would not go along with them. Uh, and and so, so there's enormous amount of, of, of controls. That said, I think the fact that there are these new media is extremely important uh, because it's impossible to block them completely. And, uh, you know, during 1989, uh, one factor was that... There was communication with the outside world at that time via the fax machine, which even in the West was still relatively rare. So news was getting in and out, and even that relatively small amount uh, was enough to kind of give demonstrators some vision and some hope. Uh, so now everything is heavily censored. Uh, but people find ways to get around yes. it. Yes, as Sean said, uh, the government recently did a crackdown on these VPNs that allow you to kind of get over the great firewall. Is there a uh, get
0: around for that? Are they uh, getting around that?
1: Um, well, you know, it, it's like this um, you get people, especially the younger generation, who some of them develop real hacking skills and which sometimes can be used to find ways around uh, the various kinds of restrictions. Right. To do that requires a certain amount of, of dedication and, uh, and and skill. One of my graduate students wrote a, a terrific piece on uh, netizens today and how the Internet has affected people's consciousness, putting them in contact with all sorts of new experiences and ideas. And she says, actually that one of the things, one of the ways that uh, at least the young men get into it initially is they develop skills to get around the, the, the censorship because they want to access pornography. I wasn't
0: worried they were going anyway, to go there. Okay. They, they, they do enough, but
1: they develop skills. <laughs> they develop these skills. And then some of them go on to uh, eventually even, even, even uh, political things. Uh, so in any case, there, where there's a will, there's a way. Right. And, and so people do uh, navigate their way around at least some of these. And then they use – there's also a, a way in which people use all sorts of, of – uh, code words and images right. uh, that attempt to keep one uh, step away uh, from the censors. The there was this image of the so-called grass mud horse in Chinese. The, the, the sounds of the words, you say it right, uh, basically would be something obscene that we couldn't talk about on the radio. Okay. Uh, but it, it's directed against uh, the government and so Okay, forth. And so they, they do things like that. Okay. and uh, there are ways of kind of getting around a cat and mouse game. Uh, but it's difficult. So ordinary people you know who aren't especially good at at, at computers, uh, for them, it'd be too much work and, right. and, and too much hassle to do that. But it is possible to to get around. So in this modern world, it's impossible to have an impermeable firewall uh impossible to keep the news out. And so therefore that's a that's a crack in the system that, you know, offers possibilities for change going forward.
0: For, uh, for those you, of you who've uh-huh. just joined us, hold on to that thought, Dr. Lin. My guests are Richard Matson, University of California, San Diego, Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Sociology and Chinese Studies, and also Dr. Sean Lin, Media Professional and Activist, and he's the General Manager of WKER in Rockville, Maryland. And we're talking about right now where the Chinese society is in, there's a tension between what people don't know, what people are trying to get out in terms of what, contributions, the activist Liu Xiaobo, who died last month, um, imprisonment from the liver cancer. So, Dr. Lin, you were going to add to that about the get around with the-
2: The uh, Great Firewall, but, yeah. Yes, <laughs> the
0: Great Firewall of China.
2: Yes. So, actually, nowadays, uh, many Chinese people started using different uh, internet gadgets. Those gadgets may be developed by the some other technical companies or some non-profit organizations in the United States, Some like uh, UltraServe, like Freegate, or Dynamic IP. There are different tools uh, developed uh, overseas to help the Chinese people, you know, to help them jump over the wall. Some of the tools they use pretty simply. You can even just send a simple email to a particular account, and then you got an email that tell you how to uh, link, use a special VPN or things like that. So, and also now there are so many Chinese people, you know, came to uh, US or Europe for yes. tourism, right? So, sometimes, some of the time they will pick up a CD at a tourist site, and sometimes they, you know, get it from the Chinese supermarket, some simple CD. Tell them how to use these little gadgets to jump over the firewall so there are different ways to help the chinese people inside so some of these website uh publishing more critics on the chinese government they got you know millions of visitors every month so that's why there's a lot of chinese people and can jump over the firewall even though the chinese government had different level of censorship but overall one of the concerns is that the majority of the netizens inside china you know, when you lock inside for such a long time, sometimes it create a big false illusion. They feel like they have the freedom, and they feel like they got all the information. The government let you uh, get all these information, entertainment, the news, world news. So you feel like you have a lot more information than before, so they feel like they know uh, the truth uh, outside. So many people are kind of gradually, gradually, being brainwashed, you don't know. And at the same time, just like uh, Professor Madsen just mentioned, Chinese government hire huge population, huge troops, you can say, internet troops, to do the censorship. There's one data saying China have about 300,000 internet police. So those people, wow. every day, they're just watching on the internet and try to monitor the citizens' uh, conversation on the internet.
0: So they're watching somebody jump the barrier and then collecting the data on what the activity is without that person understanding. So if... Censorship is yeah, the first barrier. Even if you
2: don't do the jumping you know, movements, even if you're to. inside China, you are, you are being monitored.
0: Yes, yes. Well, all right, let's with that uh, take that grim scenario and go into a deeper grim scenario that some journalists are very troubled by the recent, the 90th commemoration of the People's Liberation Army how Xi Jinping, and please tell me how to say this, uh, his name. Uh, that, how, Xi
2: Jinping. Xi
0: Jinping, yeah. how uh, he comported himself. There, there. He's getting to be, it seems to be more of a cult figure and approaching perhaps the stature of Mao in the way he's doing that and reinforced by the fact that it doesn't look like he has any successor. There's nobody joining him on the dais when he comes to speak in these very public settings. So maybe the two of you can tell us how dark is that?
1: I, I think Xi Jinping uh, is trying to consolidate his power and indeed to extend it. So uh, he, someone who loves power, I believe, he thinks that his predecessor, Hu Jintao, was not strong enough, perhaps, uh-huh. uh, even though from our point of view, Hu Jintao was pretty strong. It was after all, it was he who... You know, had Liu Xiaobo arrested and imprisoned and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, Xi Jinping thinks China needs even more control. So, he's done it in a number of ways. One of the problems that he and indeed leaders uh, at the top in countries like China are always going to have is factions within the Communist Party hardliners, relatively softliners, people with different visions of where to go. And he's been systematically working to get rid of of people in the party itself who might criticize him or block him or even moderate him. And he's done that through this campaign to so-called root out corruption, of which there's a tremendous amount in China. Yes. And yes. actually every high official uh, is corrupt in some way because the way business works is you have to, Cooperate with officials and give gifts and so forth to succeed. So uh, you can get anybody for corruption. And so what he's done is go after people who were potentially his rivals or his enemies, uh, have them uh, uh, accused and convicted of corruption and and toppled. And then this anti-corruption campaign. Uh, goes all the way down uh, to the grassroots. And so whole parts of the party have been suppressed in that way. Now, for a lot of people, uh, certain aspects of this are good because many ordinary people are disgusted with the corruption and so forth. Right. And so you see corrupt officials being being let off to prison. Uh, there's a certain satisfaction that goes with that. But I I think over and above the attacking of corruption, there's this effort to, to get rid of people who would be potential rivals to Xi Jinping. And it seems to be fairly successful. And he seems to have gotten rid of, of rivals and therefore can consolidate his power even more. However, when you do that, you know, uh, you make a lot of enemies, right? <laughs> and, yes. And uh, I'm sure that people with, with knives out, uh, you can't get rid of everybody. And, uh, and so we'll have to see going forward uh, if there will indeed be struggles for power uh, at the top. I think Xi Jinping thinks, and he's, he said so almost explicitly in the past, that one problem that can create unrest like the unrest in Tiananmen Square in 1989, is not just dissatisfaction from below, but disunity um, from above. Okay. Uh, one factor that helped the movement move forward was, was at the very, very top in 1989. Uh, there was dispute within the uh, top leadership about uh, how to carry out these economic reforms and then later on how to deal with the students at the very, very top between the party secretary Zhao Ziyang and um, the premier Li Peng, and uh, Zhao Ziyang wanted to take a more conciliatory line, and there was a struggle at to the top, and because of that, that left an opening for for the movement to grow. Then, in the end, Zhao Ziyang, of course, was toppled and put under house arrest, where he lived the rest of his life. So, uh, so that was going on. So. Xi Jinping wants to eliminate the possibilities of that, so you have a very tight leadership at the top. But meanwhile, his rivals have been imprisoned and so forth, and uh, and and demoted. And but you know, I, I think um, this creates, as I said, certain <laughs> bad blood at the top. And there's always a possibility that um, rivals will will emerge one way or another as we go forward.
0: Well, but we saw with with the Tiananmen Massacre, though, that, that the rivals were—they uh, did not prevail. I mean, that it meant that there was a movement that lasted about a month. Of, is, it the, is it close to that, right, in Tiananmen, the
1: massing up? Uh, well, the movement—it it, it took a while, but then once the crackdown took place, uh, the rivals were to some degree— um, uh, you know, put down
0: right, right, and so, so that's uh, that's what I'm talking about. We're in, we, how dark is this period we're in now with the or a, a consolidation again in response to the, the, the pressure mounting, that kind of thing.
1: Well, there's it, there's a systematic pressure, okay, yes. and uh, it, there's a, a tightening in all levels, right, and it's increased in the last few months even. So so that's that's where we're at now. Uh, how long that can be sustained? You know, I'm I'm not very good at predictions, and so I don't know.
0: Well, it's probably not to be known by anybody, but what sort of people are applauding that. But, Dr. Lin, I th- since you have additional comments here.
2: Yeah, I just want to add a few more points. Uh, so one of the critical political figures before Hu Jintao, his predecessor, is... Uh, Gentlemen. I think this is one of the key figures that trigger a whole situation right now that the Xi Jinping has to face Who's because, that uh, under Zemin, he has used his uh, uh, policies he called it you know just make yourself rich. Uh, I start making comments in Chinese like cai." so he basically drives the whole country into this economy uh development without any Regards on the sacrifice on the human rights on the environment or, or different ways to you know just make yourself rich fast and especially make uh, you know making the Chinese uh, Communist Party at least getting rich very fast so the society getting very polarized and then he launched a crackdown on uh, Falun Gong in 1999 and then he driven the whole um, police system uh, judicial system in supporting his crackdown policies and so. In China's current political climate, it's like a, it's like two big parties. One one of them belonged to the Jiang Zemin series. So he, when he was in power, he controlled the military, he controlled the you know the uh, propaganda bureau, the, the judicial system. Yes. and he actually even controlled the military after he retired. So Hu Jintao was a weak leader on this aspect. He he couldn't do much. He, he could he didn't control the military. So when Xi Jinping come on stage, the first thing he want to do, he want to take back the military control. That's why he first launched the anti-corruption inside the military. Yes, he want to take back the military. So it take him several years. Even now, he still reorganize his military. He still uh, you know change the, the, those military generals' positions and restructure the Chinese uh, PLA structure. So. He did a lot of work in the military in order to gain the control, because that's the one important thing. He had to control the military in order to control the Communist Party. So he used the anti-corruption movement to, <laughs> to fight with the Zemin, uh, because under uh his government's, basically everyone is corrupted. So China always has a joke saying, if you line up the Communist Party... Uh, you know, leads or leaders, you, you, you can fire every one of them. You probably maybe kill one or two innocent. But if you miss a shot, you probably miss a criminal. So, okay. so, it, so it's easy to use anti-corruption to fight with these political you know, enemies. So he has to use it this way, basically. So now that he's trying to uh, cleanse the parties, uh, whoever was loyal to gentlemen. So if you look at all those big uh, corruption officers that stepped down in the past few years, Almost every one of them was belonging to the gendermin's You can call them a gang or a sector. It's all under the control of gendermin. So even though gentlemen now is in his late 80s, he's almost dying, but his influence is still there. It's, so it's like a, a vehicle. It's on the move, even though you stop, you know, fueling the gas to it. But the car didn't stop. It still keeps going. So the Chinese political system, uh, the police, system, the judicial system still some carry out some of the policies that Jiang Zemin established at the time. So Hu Jintao has to change step by step. So and sometimes you can see even Chinese Communist Party inside they have different voices coming out. You know, like one newspaper, maybe it was under Xi Jinping's control. He has one tomb and the other newspaper maybe from uh, uh, the current uh, leader in the uh, propaganda bureau. And he was under Jiang Zemin's influence, so they may have different tone or even on the same issues. Mm-hmm. And there are many stories saying that Xi Jinping himself was. There are many attempts to assassinate Xi Jinping inside China as well. So that's why it's a very intense power struggle nowadays. Especially uh, in uh, probably in October, Chinese uh, Communist Party will have the big meetings, the 19th meetings for the Communist Parties. So, in November. Uh, yeah, probably because the final date was not set yet, okay, okay, yeah, so that's why it, it's very in, uh sensitive time, and that's why she didn't intensified the internet censorship, so that's uh, I think that's the overall situation. It's a big power struggle inside China
0: well, I I want to see if we can bring out some of this really interesting nuanced work that Professor Madden's been doing with the sort of the cultural kind of uh scaffold here. Uh, for the Chinese psyche, and I, I'm and to explain what's going on, maybe on the ordinary person's lo- uh, level here too, and then I hope we have a chance to talk about this power struggle going on amidst then a, a leadership vacuum uh, internationally speaking. I hope we can get to that. But I, I'm taken by what Professor Madsen's broken down are the hot and cold f- sorts of. Psychic aspects of the Chinese uh, profile that the and the 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 that the Ling is the sort of uh, it's a levitating and ecstatic sort of a, a kind of creative spark that's in the in the Chinese psyche that it, it's it's always there and if that and I want to mine out a little bit with Professor Matson maybe uh, Dr. Lin has um, has something to say about that too but how how that might be the spark though of of sort of dealing with what we were you were earlier do, uh, mentioning uh, Dr. Lin about the materialism that came so quickly on and collapsed the the sort of the marxist society what what this ling means in terms of uh, or what what its attraction is and and the potential for that to to raise a an ordinary person's aspirations as political and cultural beings?
1: Well, uh, I've been doing some research on Chinese culture and and religion uh, in the last, during the last decade. Uh, And that distinction Mm. comes out of that, some of that work. Now, what's happened is there's actually a, a tremendous resurgence of religion of all kinds. This includes folk religion. There have been millions of local temples rebuilt, uh, but includes also Buddhism, Taoism, uh, Confucianism, uh, and also Christianity, and for that matter, Islam. So there's been uh, a great increase in people being interested in these uh, religious traditions and, 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 and so forth.
0: Would you say even now, a hunger in some respects?
1: Uh, I think, in some respects, yes. Okay,
0: yes. I'm not trying so, to be sensational, but I want to measure the intensity because that's it, what's it, it's come through with some really interesting writings of yours.
1: Well, okay, so, so there's a, been a spiritual hunger, uh, you know, because there's this rampant materialism, and people, I think, are looking for something deeper and better. Uh, now, as far as traditional culture is concerned, uh, the movement around 1989. Represent people like Leo Xiaobo, who were educated in Western theory and so forth. Right. Uh, they they um, uh, uh, were against many of them uh, traditional culture. That was a big theme in 1989. Chinese uh, like Confucianism? Tradition, traditional culture was authoritarian, was despotic, was opaque, murky, and so forth. Uh-huh. So that was a big theme. Uh, they wanted modernity, and they understood modernity to some degree in western terms now after the crackdown in Tiananmen Square uh... some people in the government said these people were against traditional culture Uh, maybe traditional culture is good right because uh, and 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 since the nineties there's been a kind of acceptance of a sort of traditional culture and now uh, under Hu Jintao but now uh... Xi Jinping uh, there has been an attempt to kind of build uh, a sense of national identity uh, by saying that China has this great, wonderful, traditional culture, and this is the foundation of a kind of a nationalism, because Marxism, Leninism, you know, communist theory doesn't really uh, have much meaning for people anymore. So there's a big invocation of traditional Chinese culture. During the, the 2008 Olympics in Beijing, the opening ceremonies, if you remember those, uh, mm-hmm. they talked about Confucianism. They talked about Taoism. They talked about Buddhist traditions. They never talked about Mao Zedong. They never talked about communism or Karl Marx. It was all this grandeur of the Chinese 5,000 years of, of cultural history. So they're trying to evoke that. But the government is trying to use some of the traditional culture in a very particular way. Uh, One thing that Xi Jinping wants to do, and as part of his attempt to kind of get this control over the whole country politically, is to get everybody on the same page culturally, which means propagating a certain vision of traditional Chinese culture, which is a very uh, one-dimensional, rigid vision uh, that emphasizes the authoritarian aspects of traditional Chinese culture, and that's it. Chinese culture traditionally for hundreds of years, even thousands of years, was very pluralistic. There are many different dimensions, and parts of it include uh, dimensions that would uh, inspire people to, to rise up and to criticize uh, unjust power, as well as parts of it would uh, uh, you, you know, advocate uh, submitting to, 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 to authority of all kinds. So there's been this marvelous pluralism in Chinese culture, which I think mm-hmm. has been the uh, dynamic that's led to Chinese cultural creativity over, over hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, Xi Jinping wants to kind of unify that and, and, and put a one-dimensional overlay on that, uh, a particular vision of traditional Chinese culture. Uh, and uh, he's trying to do that in various ways. Uh and uh, and yet I think uh, it's uh, it's impossible to do.
0: It sounds like a uh, tremendous lift,
1: yes. And so uh, people will will find ways and you, you see different kind of outbreaks of protest of all kinds and literally actually for protests uh, over a hundred thousand a year and local protests. Wow. you see people can, Retaining these visions, you see a, a, a cultural pluralism that resists, in the end, being wiped out, because to do that is extremely difficult, almost impossible, I think. So, But but Xi Jinping is trying. He is trying. And so there's this, the, the big theme is nationalism, the great Chinese nation standing up uh, because it's got this cultural history, which is wonderful and better and the other history and so forth, and uh, and therefore reclaiming its position in Asia and in the world, in fact. Uh, so so that's the theme that they're using to motivate people. And, but the Chinese culture, even, quote-unquote, traditional culture, culture from the past, indigenous culture, is much more complicated than that, and they don't think it could be contained in a ideological straitjacket. Dr. Lin?
2: Yes. So uh, I'd like to actually discuss this topic. Soon, cause I think we're going to
0: we'll make this the last one because I'm, I'm afraid we're going to – maybe we can bring you both back at another time and talk about the, some of the leadership vacuum around the world. But I, I really want for listeners to be privy to this extremely uh, important cultural context in China. So please, you, you were saying, I'm glad you're wanting to unpackage it further, Dr. Lin.
2: Oh yes, thank you very much. And uh, the Chinese culture is very spiritual for thousands of years. So whether it's Buddhism, Taoism, and uh, uh, Confucianism, so Chinese people are always in history, um, you know, believing that the human need to be connecting with the universe, need to follow in the in the guidance of the heavens, the Buddhas, and the gods. So it's only in the past few decades under the Communism, people started start to to the atheism. So I think that's one of the biggest Change in Chinese culture history, and so uh, when Chinese people no longer believe in the communists after the cultural revolution, basically this this ideology of the communists collapsed inside China. nobody believed it but after the Tiananmen massacre, the government driving people to you know get materialism. Or get rich fast, so right. in that way that's why you see the Chinese societies, actually morality decline very fast. That's why you see so many fake products coming out of China. you can see Chinese people pointing themselves each other. So that's why uh, I think it's uh, it's a big spiritual war inside China. I totally agree on that one. But at the same time, I think the Chinese government way to promote the traditional culture may not work. I see some trends inside China people more respecting on the traditional culture. I think it's more from Chinese people's own heart. They want to go back to a tradition, a a glory, a history, a culture, and a spiritual aspect. But the government way to promoting it, more or less, it's a a brainwashing tool in certain sense because – you know, it's mingling with the uh, the nationalism, right? Uh, yeah, so, so that's why even in the temples, in in Taoist uh, temple, you would see the Taoist monk have to line up to to uh, listen to the national anthem, to do salute to the flag. You're all these reading that's propaganda. Those optics
0: yeah. are gonna make this bath fire. <laughs>
2: So and somehow you just see this ridiculous part because the, it's government-driven movement. I don't think that works, but I see if Chinese people, they themselves look inside, look back to history, try to find the essence of traditional Chinese culture. I think that's the hope of the Chinese civilization.
0: Professor Matson, do you think, and quickly here, do you think that maybe this, the monks are sort of uh, being uh, witting props and they'd like to say, this is a burlesque show. We get it. We hope everybody else gets it.
1: Um, some are and some aren't. Okay. And, you, know, you know, like anything else, it's, it's complicated. But I, I agree with, with Sean that, in the long run, this attempt to kind of impose a one-dimensional government ideology based on some sort of imagined traditional culture on the people is not going to work. Besides Chinese traditions, one has to understand there are other more modern traditions that have come in, too, including things like Christianity, which have been growing very rapidly. Diao Xiaobo, unclear, probably he probably was never baptized as a Christian formally, but in the latter part of his life, he associated very closely with prominent Christians who have been some of the leaders in these movements for human rights in China. So there's a mix of, of yes. traditional culture and Christianity in and a constant, and, and like anything else, a, a living culture constantly dynamically unfolds and develops in all sorts of ways that I think no single government can keep under control.
0: Well, gentlemen, I'm afraid we have no time left. I want to tell you what a pleasure it's been having you on the show today.
1: At least my pleasure, too, is Thank you very it's much. It's been a great pleasure being with you.
0: And I hope you come back sometime very soon and we can finish up where we started here. My guests were Richard Matson, University of California, San Diego, Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Sociology and Chinese Studies and Media Professional and Activist General Manager at WKER in Rockville, Maryland, Dr. Sonlin, Thank you very much, gentlemen.
2: Thank you, and thank, thank you, you, Professor Matson.
0: Next week, we're going to have on Ask a Leader, the Citizens Climate Lobby folks, Mark Tabbert and Chris Hilger. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.
2: Then came the People's Army with trucks and tanks and guns. The
1: government was frightened of their daughters and their sons.